0: And you can become part of our Discord community, learn more about the show, and find out how you can become a supporting member at thenextreel.com.
1: So thank you, everybody, for downloading and listening to The Next Reel. We appreciate your time and attention, and we hope you enjoy the show. What I was saying is I almost have a desk again. Mm. Yeah, no, I bought wood. I bought birch wood, just a birch board. And I'm going to sand it off, round the corners a little bit. I'm going to stain it, and I'm going to mount it on the wall. I got these great hinges, these collapsible hinges. So I have my desk, and then I can just flip these little hinges, and the whole thing will collapse down against the wall. Damn, son. Right? right? Pretty good, huh? I'm, serious. I am I'm, I'm into carpentry, and I, I, I can screw things together. <laughs> <laughs>
0: You are is, serious.
1: I am. What I'm telling you is that the act of sanding and staining a piece of wood uh, stretches the boundaries of my carpentry skill. That's what I'm telling you. <laughs> Even that stretches those boundaries. So You've hit the limits. I'm feeling pretty good about things if I can get this on the wall.
0: That is so funny.
1: Yeah, it's good stuff. Uh,
0: how's your week? Good? Did you do anything good? It's been good. It has been good. Um, yeah, what have I been up to? Uh, I watched Spy Again and had a great time with that.
1: You do like that film.
0: I, I do. I, I sure love that Melissa McCarthy.
1: You know what I didn't tell you, and I, I should have. I can't believe it. I should have called you the moment it happened. Oh. Uh, we did uh, Family Movie Night, and we saw Jem and the
0: Holograms. Oh, hey. <laughs> <laughs> One of my favorites yeah. from the year.
1: Yeah, yeah, I know it was. You've talked, uh I can't wait, I can't remember. What did you think about that movie? <laughs> uh, let me tell you, it it was, I think, a lot of it. My son adored it. He just loved it. Uh, but my wife and my daughter, they compared it to the, uh, there was a Disney film in the same ilk uh, called Lemonade Mouth. Mouth? Did you see that one? Lemonade Mouth?
0: That I never even have heard of before. Uh, no, it's, no.
1: it's like a cross between... Uh, um, you know, Breakfast Club and Gem and the Holograms. Okay, <laughs> kids, kids get thrown into detention and decide, hey, we're a band, and then that's they become hilarious. Lemonade Mouth. And so the, but what's funny about it is the gal who plays the bass in Gem and the Holograms was the guitarist in Lemonade Mouth. Uh-huh, that's uh and the, so there's that's a little, the little crossover. So everybody, you know, so we were we were a split household on Gem versus Lemonade. Well,
0: what what did you think?
1: I I gave it a solid uh yeah, it was okay. Honestly, the reason I actually think I think I liked the film better. I loved the the sort of the, the heart of the uh the droid and the father story. Ugh, yep, That was a <laughs> that was a punch in the soft places. Uh yes. but um but honestly for me the music in Lemonade Mouth, if I'm gonna go if I'm gonna sit through a movie full of like bubblegum pop. Uh, the music in Lemonade Mouth was I, I found catchier and earwormier.
0: I see. I guess I'd have to see that to really get the yeah un, a good full understanding of the lemon Lemonade Mouth music. But I really enjoyed the music in this one. No, and it was I actually, good. Yeah, and I really enjoyed the way that the director played with the uh, with the editing of the more intense scenes and how they integrated a lot of uh, um, YouTube clips. Uh, you know
1: what? That is that I thought was outstanding. I loved the, just the way they constructed the narrative. I'm I'm right with you on that.
0: I I thought in a story about an internet sensation and how that kind of is created in these days. I loved how that became kind of this integral part of the plot, and I thought that was a really fascinating way to play that. And sure, the it, I mean, it's not a perfect film, but. I think there's a lot of interesting stuff going for it, and I love that it's something that uh, my daughter gravitated to, and uh, I had a lot of fun watching it.
1: I did too. I'm so I, there I'm with you. No, hey, you know we're in violent agreement. <laughs> there you go. I love that. Um, so anyway, I didn't do anything else, and I still haven't seen The Revenant, and that really hurts. But I'm t- I'm still in that space of being torn. Anytime I think of I've got some time to go to a movie, should I see anything I haven't seen or Star Wars again?
0: <laughs> <laughs> it did drop in the box office this past week how down, far, to, number how far down number to number three down to number three what's it at now
1: what, what's it do you know off the top of your head its current take as of this recording
0: uh let me see I'll I'll try to find it but it's uh yeah it's doing
1: it's one of it's I really mean horrible. has it hit it's I, last I saw it was like at 1.7 um I think that's billion with a
0: B yeah it's it's uh it's doing really Really well for itself. Yeah. yeah.
1: Well, you know, it was good. You know, I, I will tell you what I did. Uh, what swept my family by storm is the novelization of The Force Awakens.
0: Oh, interesting. We all,
1: we all got through the book this week. And, you know, I'm going to say it. Uh, that Alan Dean Foster, um, he, I think he does a lot of movie adaptations. I feel like I read movie adaptations of his when I was a kid.
0: Uh, yes, I... I think we I think we did. I think we both did.
1: Crazy that he wrote this this book. So it it's it reads kind of like you would expect what I was hoping for and I think what I got just not quite enough of it. What I got was just some they they filled in some holes of some fun little pieces that I I felt like um you know n- narrative holes that I think needed to be filled. In in the film, and I was hoping they would make it make the whole experience better. And in that, I I feel uh, I feel gratified that that feels resolved for me. Um, They did. There were a couple of sequences that uh, there was one in particular that you would uh, think about that we heard a little bit about in our conversation with uh, DC and and Trend. Uh, The Force Awakens, uh, the Force for Change contest winners TNR Shorts from late last year, uh, is that uh, there was a. A scene that they didn't uh, they didn't tell us about, because there was no way for that to to get out, right? Uh, apart from them, but it turns out Alan Dean Foster already got it out. Did he? Yeah. So he writes all about uh, a, a scene in Maz's um, Maz's cantina um, uh-huh. that um, that they uh, where in fact uh, we do get an arm separation. Courtesy nice. of courtesy of Chewbacca, which yes. I think they should have done because that's been like that's been a long running joke—the Wookie that rips your arms off—that we've never seen since right. A New Hope, and I feel now really deeply sad that they cut that that segment because <laughs> I I want to see
0: a Wookiee rips <laughs> and the fact that Chewbacca got to do it in the book I thought was great. Uh, I heard that there's some good uh, um, kind of. Bit with Kylo after he gets shot, as to kind of what's going through yep. his head a little bit, yep, um, which helps kind of make that ending a bit uh, uh, work a little bit better, as far as why he's not quite uh, kicking as much butt as one might think he should.
1: There is, and you know, the on the flip side of that, they they do a much better job of setting the stage for just how powerful the bowcaster is. Yes, um, and and so you know the fact that. A yeah, we get to hear a lot more from him about how he's doing. B uh, that that weapon is one that you just don't recover from. Uh, that was a that that was a really great sequence that to get a little bit more of the, the book was well, like it's one of those. It wasn't that it wasn't that great.
0: Well, and the bowcaster though, I mean. They they make that point pretty clear in the film too. They do. They it's, make it's it a, even. They make it really really clear. It's like, film. gosh, I wonder if yeah. they're going to be bringing this bowcaster up at some point. Yeah, right. Because everybody talking about how great <laughs> everybody's it is. Talking
1: about the bowcaster, when, you you wonder um, where? Why aren't there more bowcasters?
0: Exactly. If it's such why, a powerful weapon. Yeah.
1: Why is? Uh, why do we have one in the universe?
0: And why is this the first time that uh, that Han Solo's borrowed it and tried it out?
1: <laughs> right. <laughs> So that was not resolved in the in the book. So, oh, well. alas. Uh but there were some good bits in the book and um so you know, I'm not sure it's on my top recommended list. But if you're a nerd for the Star Wars stuff, I'll tell you what we we also downloaded Lost Stars, uh, which is a, a YA um, story that actually tells, it tells a story of kids going into the Imperial Academy, and what I love so much about it uh, is that um, it's told from the perspective of these kids who don't know anything about a rebellion, and so it's like, hey, you know, you kind of feel like, yes, I would love to join the Korean, the North Korean army. Um, I don't know that there's a world around me <laughs> that is, that I don't know that these are, like, these guys are kind of crazy and and that it turns out we're the galactic bad guys. Uh, and so, you know, they join because of the shiny ships, and they join because, you know, there's prestige. Uh, and then, you know, over the course of the story, they they fall apart because, you know, one of them realizes that there is a, there is a world beyond the Empire, and uh, it's called the Rebellion, and so we get a parting of ways. But it ends up being a fun little YA story that in the universe that it was actually a better read than... Uh, than the force awakens novelization so and i'm sure and i am i am a total novice in star wars books so if anybody has any recommendations for for great in-universe in canon uh star wars uh books i would love to hear the recommendation because i would um i, I would dive into those i'm i'm having a good time nice yeah very cool there stuff. you go at pete wright on twitter let me know shall we tell the people where we're from or do you have yeah. anything else
0: no where are we from <clears throat>
1: Hey, everybody, this is The Next Reel. I'm Pete Wright, and that right over there is Andy Nelson. Yo. And we spoil movies. Tonight on the show, the third in our series of the films of David Mamet as writer, with a 1992 adaptation of his own play, Glengarry Glen Glenn Ross. Before we get into that, you should learn more about us at TheNextReel.com, subscribe to the show on iTunes, or follow us on Twitter and Facebook at thenextreel. If you haven't done so yet, make sure to head over to the site and check out the Gear Store. We do this show because we love it, uh, but we also need your support. Buy a mug or buy a shirt or buy a poster or a scarf or a duvet cover. uh, And know that with every purchase, uh, you are supporting this show and all the series that we're doing here at The Next Reel. Thank you so much. And... For all of you who have ever had to go on a sit with Bruce and Harriet Nyborg, you should
0: head over to the Next Reel's Instagram, hashtag PonyPrize, hashtag Guess the Movie Challenge. And since Stephen Smart is busy desperately working to sell his own crappy leads so that he can get his own cup of coffee, I'm filling in to let you know that at FegFee is a closer. <laughs> Damn, that's right. Nice. FegFee is definitely getting his cup of coffee this week after nailing it after just having the image up for 35 minutes. Holy cow! Wow. Way to go, Fegfi! You are a closer. You get your cup of coffee. The movie was *The Man with the Golden Arm*, 1955 Otto Preminger film, starring Frank Sinatra. And uh, yeah, that's uh, that may be a record. So congrats, Fegfi! Five
1: minutes. <laughs> that is bananas.
0: That is crazy fast. So uh, yeah, Fegfi is yet again entered. To win the uh, 2016 Pony Prize. Love it. We do have some follow-up from uh dear friend of the show, Ben
1: Lott, with the Blot Spot.
0: Yes, we do. Somehow I enjoyed the Untouchables, despite its best efforts to bug me. <laughs> <laughs> that says a lot. There were moments when I found the score distracting instead of fitting. Sorry if that's sacrilegious to say about Morricone. I don't really think so. I mean... When you've written written that many scores as Morricone has, I I think you're going to hit those points sometimes. So it's totally fine. The death scenes were somewhat over-dramatized. I think we agree with that. And if I thought the legal logic of the verdict was sketchy, that was nothing compared to switching the juries. Not to mention just how horribly unconvincing Costner was as Elliot Ness. I must agree with you, Andy. This is the one film where calling him a two-by-four really seems to fit. Yet despite all these negatives, I found the movie fun to watch and engaging. Maybe it was just the great work of Connery and De Niro, but I liked it a lot more than I think it deserved. Your rank 185, my rank 63.
1: Let's just let's just look at, at how introspective that last line really is, because I think that's the <laughs> zinger. I liked it a lot more... Than I think it deserved. (laughs)
0: Yes.
1: (laughs) That's awesome. (laughs) Uh, All right, Andy, I think it's time. Let's do trailers. I'm going to go first because speaking of surprises, wow, Andy, 10 Cloverfield Lane. This film surprised me. Uh, I, you know, I knew at the end of Cloverfield, the original film, uh, the, the monster film, we'd done it on the show. Oh, yes. Uh, at the end of Cloverfield, when the, all the press was coming around, uh, and it was doing well in the box office, they, they said, is there going to be a sequel? And what they said, and I don't have the, the source of this, but this is just my sense memory of it, is what they said, we would love to continue to explore this universe, uh, this Cloverfield universe, but, it, whatever we do is probably not going to be a straight-up prequel or sequel, It, it but we do want to explore the universe, right? Yeah. That was my memory of it. And then we get the trailer for 10 Cloverfield Lane, and the tagline is, monsters come in many forms. I I don't know if this is the trailer or, or the, the spiritual sequel of Cloverfield, the original. I don't know. Uh, it stars uh, John Goodman. Uh, John Gallagher Jr., Mary Elizabeth Winstead, and it it looks like uh, a kidnapping story or some sort of a John Goodman plays a guy who is um who is somehow holding Mary Elizabeth Winstead and John Gallagher uh hostage in some way shape or form in a bunker and he it you you get the sense that he was trying to protect them maybe it's uh you know hey we it was the 60s and we stayed down here during the during the missile crisis that we thought was happening and nobody's ever come back up again. um, And what they come up to explore, we don't know. We just get a brief flash that there's something going on outside when one of them tries to escape. And then it's, but it looks like a really intense kind of locked room thriller. Uh, And I, my hunch is it takes place in um, it takes place in the Cloverfield universe.
0: Yeah. Seems to
1: now. Then I go read the IMDb uh, uh, bio. So that was all my assumption. It says here, waking up from a car accident, a young woman finds herself in the basement of a man who says he saved her life from a chemical attack that has left the outside uninhabitable. And therein lies the mystery. What'd you think?
0: It reminded me of the opening of season two of Lost, Yep. When, when we see um desmond in the totally. bunker totally doing his thing you don't even realize he's in a bunker until the alarm goes off and all of a sudden he kind of goes and it's like what the heck's going on he looks through his little thing and he sees he sees a lock like looking through the window or whatever it was i can't remember exactly but that's exactly what this whole thing reminded me of because you have no real sense that it's in a bunker until it hits uh it hits that point um it is really interesting. I think that there's something really interesting going on with, uh, with the story here. And I, I guess for me, I don't know if it matters if it's a Cloverfield sequel or not. I think it looks really interesting. If it does end up being kind of a sequel in the Cloverfield universe, I think that's great. If it's just its own little story, I think that's cool too, because either way, it looks like a compelling story.
1: I think so, too. I hope it's in the universe. I don't know what to expect. Uh, It comes from director Dan Trachtenberg. And uh, Dan Trachtenberg, what a funny history that guy has. Uh, He was... Uh, He was a host of an internet show, a podcast called The Totally Rad Show uh, with Jeff Kanata and Alex Albrecht for a long time. And he's been just kind of in and around the the geek broadcasting circles for a long time. His films uh, as director, he he did Kickin', um, apparently did a short uh, based on the Portal universe, the game universe called Portal No Escape, uh, which I haven't seen but I now I'm really excited to Portal was one of my very favorite games uh, of 2000 gosh well it feels like it's been a long time uh anyhow so he's done a couple of things this suddenly is a is a big film and he is directing it and so I'm you know I'm thrilled to see him get this kind of a, this kind of a bump in his career so it should be uh should be an interesting thing to see he's a talented guy so here's hoping yeah. fingers crossed yeah. that this works for for Dan
0: I hope so. It looks like a, it'll, it's going to be a fun one, so uh, yeah. I know I'll be there.
1: And it comes out pretty darn soon, March 11th, 2016, so uh, get ready.
0: Awesome. What do you got? Well, mine is about another monster, the Money Monster. Oh, this looks intense. This looks really good, and I'm hoping it is. Um, Jody Foster, as a director, has kind of been a little hit or miss with me. But this, I mean, this really doesn't look like anything else that she's directed. This looks like kind of just a really intense uh, thriller. And I kind of like what they're doing here. I'm hoping that this does something that, uh, you know, makes for a really gripping, um, intense uh, look at kind of uh, the. Everything going on, I, I you know it's it's timely the way that uh, Wall Street and just the financial market and everything and how it's affecting people and and the crashes and all that sort of stuff how it affects people and and also these TV personalities who say you know buy sell all that sort of stuff and I, I love the 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 way that it's tying all that in and I think this could be a network type of film and I I would love to see that actually happen I don't know if it will it does ring to be a little bit Hollywood. Um, with George Clooney and Julia Roberts playing kind of the two leads here. But at the same time, I think it's very thrilling and gripping. And, you know, I I, I want to believe that that this is going to do well. Everything seems to be—all uh, the pieces are in place. I'm just hoping it actually uh, pulls it off. I, I'm not familiar with these screenwriters. Alan DeFiore, uh Jim Koof, and Jamie Linden. Not that familiar with them. Uh, we Are Marshall, Dear John you know a couple of films like that that uh we well, are Marshall. Understood. you haven't you've seen that right no i haven't seen it I, oh. I mean i'm familiar with the film i've never seen it it looked it looked to be kind of um i guess i looking at the trailer i have a good understanding of what to expect from the film oh you do yeah no you do yeah 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 um but matthew uh, fox was he was great yeah i mean uh, jim Koof uh, has uh, written stuff like national treasure rush hour Mm -hmm. Um, Grim. So, I mean, you know, some some fun things there. Um, Snow Dogs, stuff like that. And then Alan DeFiore, uh, what's he written? Uh, Also Grim. And, uh, uh, yeah, a lot of Grim. A lot of Grim stuff. Mm -hmm. Yeah, he's really working on that stuff. So, you know, I mean, none of them have uh, credits that scream, you know, strong... Um, you know, kind of a, a thriller about something like this, but you know, I, I still think that it could be something that they pull off. At it, I mean, it looks really compelling. I don't know what you think.
1: Uh, I I thought it looked fantastic. It seems exactly like the film I expect from George Clooney right now. Yeah, uh, he is the he is moving into this stage in his career where his films are taking a an activist bent. He has a a strong—I mean, he wears his politics so firmly on his sleeve, and I think rightfully so. I mean, in, in terms of his his role as an artist to hold up a mirror of, of some element of our culture that we need to—that uh, that he believes we need to be more aware of, uh, it, I, I think that's—you know, I, I think that's admirable. I, I love that he's doing that with his notoriety, and I think this film looks really intense, even if you don't agree necessarily with the politics Um it's it's a tough one though for me to imagine. I think the the group that doesn't agree with the politics is going to be rather small, wealthy, but rather small.
0: Yeah, yeah. Um, but I am concerned that it might be wearing its its opinions too much on its sleeve, and it may that like to me when I watch this trailer, that seems uh, the the Hollywoodishness of it. Yep. It it comes across in saying, "Hey, look at me! I'm a message movie uh, yeah. packed in an action thriller." You know, yeah, and and that's kind of my concern. But you know, I mean, George Clooney, Grant Heslov, as producers, they have done some good stuff, so it's it's possible that it, it goes the other way.
1: I'm I'm excited for it. I I like it, and I'm I I think I'm I don't know. I think I get more excited about message movies than maybe
0: you do. <laughs> that's hard to say. But this one opens May thirteenth, so uh yeah, coming up uh, just at the head of summer.
1: I like it. I like it, Andy. You can't close them. You go home and you tell your wife your troubles. Because one thing counts in this life. Get them to sign on the line which is dotted. Let me have your attention for a moment. Put that coffee down. Let's talk about something important. Because we're adding a little something to this month's sales
0: contest. As you all know, first prize is a Cadillac Eldorado. You want to see second prize? Second prize is set of steak knives. Third prize is you fired. We should stand up and strike back. Somebody. Yeah. Should do something to them. exists on Earth.
1: Yes. What can you do? I gotta tell you, I'm ready to do the Dutch. I know what I'll do. I'll go out and rob everybody blind and go to Argentina. You think you're a thief? We're just talking. We are? Yeah, we're just speaking about it. Speaking about about it's an idea. We're not actually talking about it. No.
0: It's a robbery. It's a robbery? No. And what is it we're so afraid of?
1: All you need, a little
0: boost. Tonight is the thing. So be it. What happened? what happened
1: uh we had a slight burglary
0: criminals come and they
1: take they steal the phones they stole the phones they stole the oh. you robbed the office oh sure i robbed the office oh sure you did that you get out of here how can you talk to me that way are you talking to me when i talk to the police i get nervous you know who doesn't uh oh thieves what's your name al pacino jack lemon alec baldwin ed harris alan arkin from the pulitzer prize winner glengarry
0: Glen Ross. This is how we keep score
1: the beat. Glenn Gary, Glenn Ross, Andy, 1992 adaptation of Mammoth Zone's stage play. Uh, This one directed by James Foley. Uh, It stars everybody, uh, all men, and most of them uh, nominated or now having won uh, Academy Awards in some shape or form. This is a very talented cast of white
0: guys. It you really know, is.
1: In terms of throwing white guys on screen. White yes. older men.
0: <laughs> How fitting, considering the Oscar nominations. <laughs> Let's talk about more white guys. <laughs> oh, jeez. I know, right?
1: This is not that show. Uh, no. Al Pacino, Spike Lee,
0: you can still tune in.
1: <laughs> <laughs> Al Pacino, Jack Lemmon, uh, Alec Baldwin, Alan Arkin, Ed Harris, Kevin Spacey, Jonathan Price, Bruce Altman, Jude... Chicholella,
0: yeah, you say that
1: one. Chicholella, I'm gonna go with
0: Chicholella. Just say Jude C, Jude C, who loves you, baby,
1: uh, and a couple of other guys who stand around in the background. Uh, most and,
0: and there's a there's a lady.
1: That's I guess that's true. There is a lady,
0: the coachette girl, Lori yeah. Tanchin. <laughs> it's the lady, the only lady, yep.
1: lady. Uh, this is an amazing uh, cast. This uh, uh, talking about the this is kind of a behind the scenes. It's a behind the scenes film of uh, what goes on in a real estate office, circa late nineteen eighties. How did this one uh, hit you? And and again, we'll start with the from the perspective of uh, David Mamet, and what uh, characterizes a David Mamet script? How did this one hit you?
0: This was my first David Mamet experience with David Mamet, if that makes sense. Like I, 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 had seen The Untouchables before this. There are moment, there are things that I had seen that uh, that Mamet had done that that felt, you know, just like other sorts of movies. This was the first time I had experienced anything of his that was actually, like, really his, that I could say, like, this was a play of his, this was something that he wrote, this has Mamet speak. This, to me, defines David Mamet, and this is kind of what I've come to expect when I watch David Mamet projects, and I and I listen to David Mamet uh, dialogue. The way that the dialogue is written here, the way the characters move, the way that their motivations change constantly as they're talking— um, that to me says David Mamet. And um, I, I, I don't know. I, I didn't see this in theaters. I rented this sometime soon afterward. And immediately. You would have
1: been, felt, like, would have been like 10. No. What would you have be- been? Oh, 1992. Yeah, right. No, no. That's right. You would not have been
0: 10. <laughs> no, I would not have been. I was going to say,
1: I also did not see it in theaters, but I was a child. I was not
0: a child. <laughs> you were not. <laughs> yeah, well, you were, actually. I knew you were. I know. was
1: a budding mathematician. <laughs>
0: <laughs> <It> <laughs> That's arithmetician to you. It's uh it's a great uh it's it's a great story. I mean I, I enjoy the characters. I enjoy kind of this this uh journey of desperation that we kind of watch them go through here over the uh over the hour and forty minutes. Um I have a great time with this story. I, I really get into everything going on here. Um this time I had I had some um some little squibbles I guess with some uh, some of uh, Foley's direction but for the most part I had a great time rewatching this one.
1: I what I love so much about you know what characterizes Mamet Speak for me is his ability to write the words that one is thinking when one is at their most desperate. Do you know what I'm saying? There is a sense when I hear these guys talking and they are really particularly Arkin Alan Arkin I mean, he's just amazingly desperate in this film, and the way he his language is formed uh, as a result of that desperation strikes me as iconically mammoth. That is a a real skill that he has. And all of these guys are desperate. Every one of them is struggling in some way, shape, or form with their power being sucked, vacuumed out of their Hands And it starts early in the, in the film for some of them. It manifests later in the film for others, but no one in here, all the way down to the detectives uh, in the, the crime scene, is able to really exist authentically in their power zone. This is, this is what happens when you just throw a bunch of desperate rats in a, in a, on a sinking ship, you know what I mean? And, and that, I think, is, is, is a space in which Mamet uh,
0: really excels. I love uh, – there's a scene when um, Alan Arkin and Ed Harris are driving, and the uh, the way that Alan Arkin plays those it, – it's not even full sentences. That, no, right. <laughs> it's just like these little like half lines that he has, but that is like – it's so good. It's like that is exactly what uh, comes through so well in Mamet speak, and just the way that – uh, yeah, you're right. It's it's the character thinking, and they're starting to verbalize something, and their mind is kind of meandering as they kind of are you know thinking about something else, and it reflects so much of kind of the. It's interesting because I guess you can say it does reflect the subtext of what's going on because there are thoughts that they're thinking, and their mouth is moving and talking, but the way that their brain is is moving, it's actually causing them to kind of stop talking or change the way they talk, change their motivation. And in all of that, that's kind of, you can get the subtext underneath that as to kind of the way that their brain is thinking and what's really kind of going on there.
1: That's exactly, that's exactly right. And in fact, I, I found this quote that I want to read because I find it, funny, especially given the context that you just framed his ability as a writer. Uh, He is asked uh, by an interviewer, I think it was Variety, he says, how many passes does it take to create perfect dialogue? And Mamet's answer, that's a really good question. I'm not sure I know the answer. I do it fairly spontaneously, and then sometimes, for various reasons, it has to be recrafted. I used to be really good at that, but it gets more difficult as I get older just because my brain is failing. I have less brain cells because long before any of you guys were born, there was something called the 60s. That's where the brain cells were. And (laughs) that has put all of his writing for me in a different uh, frame. Uh, The other character I think that really exemplifies Mamet uh, that sort of desperate mammoth speak is Jonathan Price character uh, Jonathan Price's character James Link, uh his desperation at and and his absolute um shame as a husband uh as he comes to uh to apologize to Al Pacino and try to get him to uh rescind the contract is brilliantly, brilliantly, desperately, breathlessly mammoth in my eyes.
0: And it's uh, and Jonathan Price was so well cast for that role because he carries that sort of just something about the tone in his voice, but he has that 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 quality that feels desperate like there's an extra sense of desperation because his voice has this unsurety to it that I think works really well for that. It's not a
1: role that I uh, I feel comfortable with uh, with Jonathan Price playing either because you know I'm used to seeing him in roles where he is has so much confidence and so much just panache. And uh, I don't—my uh, the my memory of him as an actor is not of him in a role like this. So every time I see it, I am um, a little bit shocked and super impressed that he's able to sort of convey the feelings of—the uh, feeling of what it is to be a complete and utter whelp.
0: It's funny because, I mean, I think that— um that character actually reflects really well his character in Brazil which of course you know I love so much yeah. so I do see a lot of that in him in that character but then you look at what he's done like in I mean he's freaking the you know peron in evita I mean yeah. he's really I mean he he does a great job of playing a wide uh, swath of characters yeah. and I really enjoy seeing him in so many things but uh yeah I think that uh it is great seeing him here um and with these other characters, I mean, he does such a great job um, carrying his own weight in this group.
1: He's he is fantastic. I you know I can't remember was he in? Why do I have this memory of him in Miss Saigon? Wasn't he the the crazy guy in Miss Saigon? I can't seem to find
0: in the Broadway yeah. version. Yeah, I don't know.
1: Well, that's going to have to be for follow up. But I uh, that's my my memory is that he was uh, he was in. Uh, Miss Saigon, but definitely Evita. Um, anyway, he's an he's an amazingly talented actor, and it's so fun to see him in this cast, particularly in the almost ensemble sequence at the end, as they are as everything is blowing up, and and the interview needs to come around, and the detectives are there, and the contract needs to be canceled, and Arkin is going berserk. And uh, everybody is in that incredibly confined, uh, you know, claustrophobic space of the sales room, and he is just helpless in the corner, and I just adore it.
0: Well, and what's interesting in that scene, um, just focusing on that a little more, is that it's written in a way where it's not him really getting angry at them, saying, look— I don't want to do this. I, you know, it's, I I don't want to do this. I mean, he's really talking about how weak he is. And it's, it's this sense of shame that comes through that you just don't see so often in that sort of scene. It's really interesting. And it's, it's played so well. And yes, he played the engineer in the West End original production of Miss Saigon.
1: That's what it was. Thank you for finding that. That's my memory of him. I'm glad that came through. I am. I think you're right, and I think that's, that's an important thing, and we, we talk a little bit about James Foley, and I, you know, kind of general opinion of Foley, but my opinion of Foley's work in, on this film is—and uh, and I don't think he gets enough credit as a director because Mamet's name is so big on this film, right? His reputation is so big it looms over this film that I think we lose sight of the fact
0: that James Foley directed it. But Well, yeah, so I'll come back to that. Okay. Finish your point.
1: Well, my point is, I really love the staging, generally, around this entire small set. I, I love how they do it. And in particular, in this sequence, one of the things that we get out of Jonathan Price, again, part of his gift as a physical actor, is his ability to be small, to play small, and yet continue to be uh, 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 something around which everything else can orbit, right? Because that sequence is unique. It's a sequence where he comes in... And just wants to stand out of the way. Just give me the contract and stand out of the way. But as a result of his placement in that room, everything else revolves around him, right? Roma, the energy around Roma is all to get everybody to shut up so he can focus on Link. But everybody needs to talk to Roma. The detective needs to talk to Roma. Roma's trying to get Arkin to shut up all of this energy that is building and building and building toward Williamson's office is all about as a as like the dominoes fall it they all lead back to link and his entirely tiny um uh physical presence in the back of the room it's it's really magnificent to watch
0: would you say he's the central link well i wouldn't <laughs> not to put too fine a point not on, to put, it, <laughs> <not> on it <laughs> but yes I so, completely agree right. I definitely agree that, He's, he... uh, that was done very deftly
1: <laughs> <laughs> uh I think that uh so we've we uh, so far this this is not the movie of Jonathan price uh however um, it's a funny it's a funny thing did you have you ever seen the play the original play nope you ever read it I have read bits and pieces of it it's a funny thing because it this is it's a unique this film is unique, a unique adaptation, and it's it's unique. Certainly, in my experience. I have not read that many plays since since college, uh, but it is a, a unique adaptation because, in my opinion, the screenplay bests the stage play, uh, and that well, is that is a strange thing.
0: Well, I think, I mean. Having Mamet adapt his own play, I think, was very smart because he had a—I mean, we already have talked about some of his other films. Now, The Untouchables happened after he wrote the play. Um, The verdict happened before he wrote the play, but both of them happened before he wrote the screenplay for this. And I think in— his uh, time in Hollywood, I think that he had started getting a good sense of kind of what works on the screen and what works on the stage. And I think that this is a great uh, a great um, signpost for him saying now he has a, a good understanding of the two and he can take what he's done on the stage successfully and he's found a way to adapt it to a a film that helps open it up a little bit he's added some scenes he's changed things around a little bit the the stage play the first act all takes place in the Chinese restaurant the second act takes place in the office the next day Um, now we've got more stuff going on um, in the office In the first half of the film we've got um we've got um The machine, Shelley going off to the house to go talk to uh, talk to one of the people that he's trying to sell to. Um, We've got scenes in cars. I mean, they've done a good job of opening this up and giving us more around the kind of the world, letting us see a little bit more. Yes, it still is very very dialogue heavy. I mean, it still is very much the play, but at the same time, they have found a way to kind of expand it. And I think that um, it's it's. Mammoth who really took to that and and found the right way to tell this story and open it up and give us more of an actual film rather than a play adapted.
1: Although, uh, you know, one of the things that you start to see as the as the you know, more and more of these productions of of the play happen since the film is you see them inserting some of the sequences that that Mammoth has uh, that Mammoth wrote exclusively for the um for the film, which I find fascinating.
0: Speaking specifically of Alec Baldwin's scene.
1: Yes, absolutely. Which, which is interesting in that it defines the the tone of the entire experience of these sales guys. I mean, it is it is the thing that goes and and you know pivots um, our entire understanding of their worldview. Uh, and it is a long scene in which uh, Blake. Baldwin's character comes to give them a motivational sales
0: speech. Yeah, it's um, it's it's a scene you don't forget. And I think if this film had found an audience um, better, it's the sort of role that an actor gets a supporting actor nod for. And people question going, well, geez, they only had that one scene. But it's such a good scene. Alec Baldwin plays that character so well, so... Um, there's so much spite and anger and uh and force in that I, I didn't even time it, but five, seven, ten minutes, whatever however yeah, long he is on screen. Definitely
1: more than five.
0: Yeah. It's 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 just so intense that you can't help but take notice and pay attention to this guy who's just beating everybody down on screen. It's it's just fantastic to watch. And it's it's created some just absolute classic zingers.
1: You know what it what it does. This is this is the world building scene, right? I mean, this is we we open in the restaurant and we you know we see that there is a lot of frustration for these guys and we we hear their individual stories, but not until we see most of them in the room being berated by this power player of a salesman uh, sent to them from the the Don, you know, the Mitch and. Mitch and Murray. Mitch and Murray. Uh, not until we see him. He's the one in that seven minutes that defines the stakes and builds the world for us. Without that sequence, I don't think the story works as well. I don't think we feel the level of desperation as much uh, as we do with him in it. It is magnificent.
0: Yeah. And I mean, world building is a good uh, way to describe that scene. It's interesting that that was not in the stage play um, because, I mean, the stage play still sells it well. I mean, you still have all those scenes kind of talking about the leads and I wanted to get the Glengarry leads because I need to make the sale. You know, I can do it and all this sort of stuff. I mean, all that stuff is still there. Um, But it's all character stakes, right? It's not world stakes. No, absolutely. And I think that's what makes the stage play work really well but i think for the film if they had not had this particular scene in there i i don't think it would have been nearly as strong you're you're just not getting a sense of like you're saying this world
1: yeah i think so too i i think it's really magnificent i it, the other in general i mean it's by and large a word for word um you know the the actual dialogue is nearly word for word with the exception of the additional stuff he also did some crazy um cuts to to just sort of intercut sequences that were in the play were delivered as you know straight um they're now intercut between the different pairs of of sales guys um and uh, we also are introduced to a couple of sequences uh, uh one in particular where we see um uh Shelly go and and actually meet with a customer and we get to see you know in in his case the shame of walking around with your you know with your hat in your hand being sent packing um. Uh, after shamelessly
0: uh, sneaking into his house, well, and, and you know that's something that's interesting that should be said about these characters. I mean, is they're pretty despicable. They're, they're despicable. All, they're yeah. all criminals. They're all lying and 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 conniving their way into the lives of these poor investors who made the mistake of, of sending in a card saying that they might be interested in something like these, uh, this, these properties. Um, it's just terrible, I mean, and I feel for this guy who has to deal with this this sleazy salesman who weasels his way into his house i mean it's terrible, but at the same time, what I love about the play is you still feel so much for Shelley, even though he is one of these weaselly salesmen you You get this sense of this backstory with him with this daughter who's in the hospital and and his wife and 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 all of the stuff going on in his life that's all hinted at, and you get little bits and pieces of conversation, but you don't really know. But there's enough there, so you get this real sense of this guy who's just desperate, and he's he's really fighting for his day-to-day living, right? I mean, he's really just pushing. This is the life that he's ended up in, whether he chose it or not. This is where he is, and he has to follow through, and he has to do A, B, and C in order to get to, you know, the, the paycheck at the end of it. And it's it's and clearly i mean he he's good at it he knew what he was doing at least at one point um as he says you know they they even kevin spacey's character acknowledges he was great at a particular point in time he may not be there now but he was a great salesman and you know and and i think this scene is just is really difficult and it's painful to watch because you don't like him as this salesman in this house but he's a character that you do like and it's 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 difficult to watch it's 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 really interesting to get those two sides of this character as you're seeing him go through the motions
1: that's one of the most elegant um, ways to describe it is that you you know you you know that you hate this guy you hate him for what he does and what he does to people um even though it's never explicitly said that what these guys are doing is, you know, necessarily illegal, uh, you know, all we've seen of the property they're selling is in a glossy brochure. It does. We don't ever get any sort of substance. That's that's a little bit of the MacGuffin of the thing, um, but. You know what we what we get from their character is that they're, as you say, they're shifty. We want him to succeed because of how artfully and subtly Mamet has built his backstory for us through just snippets of one sided conversation with, between him and the, and his daughter. We get this sense of, or you know, of his life situation, and um, and we want him to succeed in spite of of our feelings about him. And I I find that just terrific
0: it's a good sign of a solid writer and I don't know. I think this is a really strong sense of what works so well when Mamet is writing. And I mean, we have seen, I mean, I, I mentioned it last week. We do see this sense of desperation that he has, uh, has introduced in both the verdict and the untouchables men in desperate situations, trying to accomplish something, trying to make something happen. And I think, um, this is the film in our series where it really it really just packs a punch, and it does everything right, especially uh, in relation to Mamet working at the top of his own game, I think.
1: I, I think so, too. You know, it, it makes me—I I can't help but think of Death of a Salesman, and this was—you know, the cast apparently referred to the, the film as Death of an effing salesman— um, as they um, as they made the film, it's um, Death of a Salesman was written in 1949. Uh, Arthur Miller. It's a Pulitzer and Tony winning uh, uh, play. It is. Uh, it's been revived uh, many times. Um, it is uh, a fantastic work that really defines the the culture of the American dream. Uh, in the in the this major cultural transformation uh, that was occurring in you know as a result of the end of the war and the massive growth in consumer culture and that was uh, uh, an incredible those were incredible forces uh, that all come to a head through the eyes of Willie Loman as he as an older salesman is trying to figure out how to make his life um, something worth living in his uh sort of twilight days, and he's less and less able to do it, and the world around him is less and less willing to listen to him. He is also kind of a despicable guy, uh, and that ends up making it a a fascinating thing to watch and a wonderful parallel to Glengarry Glen Ross. Um, It is to watch all of these guys essentially embody some component of the Willie Loman ethic uh, and... In fact, the visual symbolism around the the sort of nature of what is the American dream, the discussion in Death of a Salesman around the American dream is, you know, you can have anything you want if you are somehow likable. You can, if you are good looking, if you cut a good line in your suits, if you walk in with confidence, you don't have to know anything, you don't have to study hard, you can be somebody if you just carry yourself right, right? If you're popular. And in this film, um, we we get sort of the answer to each of those things. We get to see the guy who is good looking and and confident and charismatic and persuasive in through through you know Roma, and, and yet he is not successful, ultimately. We get to see the guy who is shamelessly sneaking in, like a, a wet dog sneaking in across the carpet with his tail between his legs. We get to see all of these characters essentially as an answer, as a punchline to the story that Miller set out in 1949, and I think that's really beautiful. Even the visual symbolism is, you know, we get so much of the, the red and the blues uh, that... You know, you get to it, it, sort of harkens to this American ideal, like you can't help but see it in the very opening sequences of the film. Uh, that drives you to ask the question is this our America? Is this what we aspire to? Uh, and in, in terms of our, our vocation or what we work for, what we live for, and I, I find that uh, really beautiful.
0: Yeah, it's interesting. The first half of the film is very—I uh, mean, it's at night. There's a lot of reds and blues, like you said. There's also a lot of greens in there, like—and I don't know—I'm uh, not quite sure. I haven't seen anything about the production design as far as what sort of symbolism they were doing, but I, I love what you're saying about the reds and the blues. Um, it's interesting, like the greens. Maybe that's kind of the the, the hinting of the money and everything well, money else and, that's kind and, of going on and jealousy, right? I yeah, mean, right. Green is the color of jealousy, with envy, and, right? Right, envy. Absolutely. Um, And it's so wet. I mean, goodness gracious, there's so much rain going on in the first half of the Uh movie. It is like a a torrential, torrential downpour. Did you have a problem like
1: every time they opened a car door in the rain, like all that rain went in the car? Like, does that give you trouble? (laughs) I I have a real personal problem like watching it. I'm like, shut the damn door. Shut the door. The car is (laughs) full of water. Shut the door.
0: No, yes. I mean, you certainly deal with that more than I do. And uh I don't I don't get quite as much rain, but I I certainly try to avoid That's it when I point. do. <laughs> you were saying
1: something much but, more substantive, I'm sure.
0: No, I, but it's just interesting how how wet and and kind of how um the first half of the film is really like these characters are constantly drowning. Like there is this this emphasis on these guys really trying to stay afloat. And I think that's really interesting. And it's not until the second half of the film when you see, you know... A sense of some hope, I guess you could say, in some of these characters. Certainly, uh, Levine uh, has has more hope as he's kind of gotten this sale with the Nyborgs, although he learns later that that's uh, probably nothing. But he's very positive. Of course, you also have this big investigation and everything, and, and all of the colors are gone. I mean, no more, no more reds, blues, greens, none of that. It's all gone. It's really just kind of this monochromatic blue-gray kind of like post-Rain, um everything has kind of lost its luster. And I, I think that's very interesting because you've get you get all the interesting sales bits happening as these people are so desperate in the first half. You've got the great scene with Roma as he's as he's pitching to Link. And you've got um the um you've got uh, Levine pitching to um, the guy in his living room, and you've got all these conversations about stealing the leads and all, and all this great stuff as, as everybody's having these ideas. And then the second half, it's kind of just answering all of that, but it, it just kind of loses all of its luster as now they're dealing with a lot of the realities of that. And I, I think that the the symbolism and the, and the way that they play with the colors in the film... It's pretty interesting. I don't know if they did anything like this on the stage play. I, I have no sense. As, I, I didn't see anything as to like how they played with the production design in the play itself, but I really enjoy what they did here in the film.
1: I did too. I think it's just gorgeous. I think we should talk about the, uh, the cast, uh, and we should st- I'd, I'd like to start with the most charismatic. Uh, the, uh, the talented Ricky Roma. I would buy from this guy. <laughs> if he met me in a bar and he sidled up next to me, and he had that conversation that offered me a chance to uh, I- essentially um, confess, right? I mean, that's that's what he has become. He's he is in this in this film in the Chinese restaurant. He is uh, essentially the the vessel of confession, and he but but he is confessing on behalf of the naive uh, Mister Link. And uh, I think that is really artful sales uh, sales technique. He's got the Paul
0: Harvey sales approach. <laughs> he
1: sure does. Yes, he does. Get into the story.
0: Yeah, I really enjoy watching Pacino uh, as Ricky Roma. I mean, you know, he was nominated for Golden Globe. He was nominated for an Oscar. He did great playing this character. Uh, I believe it was Joe Mantegna who uh, originally played him on the uh, Broadway show or in, I don't know if it was Broadway or one of the early iterations. It might've been Chicago when it played there. Um, I, I think he would've been great in the role too, but man, Pacino brings so much uh, to this character. It's just great watching him um, kind of, find his way, use this really interesting sales approach to get this guy to buy. I love watching it. I mean, he does. He just sells it so easily. It's like, by the time you're done, you're like, yeah, here, here's my money. I'll buy two. <laughs>
1: yeah, right. But what's so interesting about this, and it took me a while uh, uh, to get this, is that the next day when Link comes back in, uh, we actually, uh, and and he says, the way he he presents it is, my wife wants me to cancel the deal. And at first... You think, okay, well, he made the deal at the Chinese restaurant, and then he went home and told his wife, and, uh, you know, he couldn't he, he couldn't do it. She didn't like the, that he did that without her or whatever. But what comes out in their conversation is, in fact, that Roma went to their house and ate with them, broke bread with them, and, in fact, must have sold both of them together— uh, that this was happening, and she's the one who had the change of heart overnight. Uh, and I find that fascinating. It again talks to what he is imbuing this character, what Mamet is imbuing this character with that level of skill to be able to go into the family home and maintain composure and and continue to sell, um, you know, through the the confessional experience with the husband, um, to continue to sell that with the wife. I think that's a that's a great bit that it took me a long time to figure out.
0: Yeah, it's there. Um, it's he's a really interesting character, and I don't know if I caught that either initially. I think it's one of those things that you kind of pick up on. It's one of those bits that it's like I don't know if it matters that I fully got it the first time. I think what mattered is that I got what was happening in the scene, and it's just I think it's nice extra bit that you get as you kind of watch the story multiple times where you start going, oh, okay, and now I see what was happening. Right. He he mm-hmm. had gone home and all this stuff with the wife. Yeah, right, I, right. I like that.
1: Pacino was nominated for uh, uh, some awards for this.
0: Considering how many actors are in this, and uh, great actors in great performances, it's I, I really find it a shame that he was the only one who actually got nominated. And the only reason I can think that that's actually the case is because... Just, you know, nominations got split between the others because there were so many other great roles. I mean, I, I will say I was very disappointed to see that Jack Lemon did not get nominated for this. And I actually, in my head, I had always convinced myself that he also had been nominated. So I don't know why I, I thought that other than the fact that he's brilliant in his performance here. But going back and seeing that it only got nominated for the one Oscar, I I really was the kind of uh, a bit taken aback by that. Yeah, it's it's. Uh,
1: what do you think about the the fact that he lost to uh, Hackman for Unforgiven?
0: Totally justifiable. Okay. That uh, that role is just, uh, I think, one of Gene Hackman's best in in a wonderful film. So I think that uh, Gene Hackman won is totally fine and. Pacino walked away with his Oscar anyway cuz he got sent to the woman uh, best actor that year also. Right, right.
1: Well, I and I agree with you. I was I was a little worried that you were going to go the other way on that. So. Oh, no, no. You know, it's interesting. It's it's hard for me to to imagine this after, you know, loving the film as long as I have, but uh, after this, uh it was actually Al Pacino who went into one of the the Broadway revivals after the film to play Shelley Levine. Uh and I have a hard time picturing that. That's so
0: weird. Right. <laughs> Yeah, that is strange. It's interesting to look at, like, the people who played the roles. Like, Robert Prosky actually uh, played on Broadway and Chicago as Shelley, Le- uh, Shelley Levine. And I think he's a really interesting character choice. And I uh, I think he could have been interesting in the film, but I, I have a hard time seeing him do it because, man, Jack Lemmon just sells the part so well.
1: He really does. And he also, uh, he, he got the, uh, what was it? It was the National Board of Review Best Actor.
0: Yep, yep. And he was also, I I think that wherever it premiered, and I can't remember where the film actually premiered, but um, it, uh, he he got best actor there as well. So I mean, you know, he uh, is Venice, Venice Film Festival. Mm
1: -hmm. Uh, It's he's an incredible, obviously. understates uh, to say he's an incredible actor. but in this part, you know, we talk about the the guy losing you know just trying to figure out where his power went, uh, his um, his sense of vulnerability that you get from him when he every time he approaches Williamson, Kevin Spacey's uh, role of Williamson as the office boss, um, you know, you just get this sense of vulnerability that when he has to to sort of lay himself out uh, and, and and beg for the good leads, and how frustrating that is, how just bone-crushing that is, uh, that he he doesn't get it.
0: Well, and I think what... We really see here is how brilliant of an actor Jack Lemmon is. How he can take these mammoth lines and he can find different motivations for each line, and not even each line, but like different words, different sentences. You can see his motivation shifting from, oh, this one I need to be, uh, you know, pushing him, and this, one. and then the very next line I need to be pleading, and then the very next line, you know, I need to be just, you know, kind of explaining this situation going on with my daughter, and and then I'm I'm fighting, and and the way that. He he shifts. It's just it 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 is remarkable. My mind is just uh, I'm it's boggled as I watch him, especially like the scene when he and Williamson, uh, the conversation out around Williamson's car as Williamson's getting ready to leave. There's just so much going on there that Lemon is pushing, and I, I just I, I mesmerized watching Lemon uh, in every scene in this in this film, but that one in particular, uh, it just it's just like man, he is just on fire. He is an actor who clicked. Clearly, with Mammoth's dialogue, and found the right way to deliver it with this character. He certainly did. Um, and uh, are you are you a fan of The Simpsons? I, I do enjoy The Simpsons, although it's funny. I as much as I love The Simpsons, I hardly ever watch it.
1: You <laughs> too, because it's on like uh, season what thirty eight now or something. Oh, I mean, it's, God, it's it's, it's ridiculous. That's almost that's not hyperbolic. On. Like it's a, it's a ridiculously popular show, and and uh, this character was is. Um, uh, obviously uh, is, is played homage to uh, in the role of, of Gil Gunderson.
0: Yes. I did actually go watch some Gil Gunderson clips on YouTube just to get a sense as to what they did. And it's pretty fantastic. I mean, he he's just the total pathetic sales guy and he does, he, <laughs> they did a great job of capturing the, um, the Shelley Levine nature. And yeah. I really enjoy that. Totally agree. Uh,
1: we've talked already a little bit about uh, Alec Baldwin. Um, And his his place in this thing. The only thing I want to add is, you know, he comes in and he talks all about these these acronyms, right? Acronyms are. If you've never worked in sales, first of all, try not to. But if you ever do, just take note of the number of acronyms. They love acronyms. Sales and marketing love acronyms. You want to talk about acronyms? You got oh, you got the four Ps. You want to do a Google search for the new four Ps, and you'll see a thousand people who are trying to define marketing and define sales and define all through these ridiculous. Acronyms, and this one—the one that stands out—is of course ABC, always be closing, which is a complete lampoon on these ridiculous sales acronyms. Just in, just awful. Uh, but uh, this one is—he comes in and he comes—he writes it on the board, right? He writes ABC on the board, in addition to the other AIDA, right? Have you, have you made your decision for Christ? <laughs> um, but this would always be closing you if if you're watching the stage play and you see this happen you know you would miss and this is why i think that that the scene works so well in in film and and why it it you know wasn't in the original play uh because you miss how brilliant the production design the art direction is of this film right behind you think this magical sales guy has come in to teach you something, some brand new nugget of inspiration that's going to let you go out that night on a sit and change your life by closing more sales. And he writes, ABC Always Be Closing. And in the frame, right behind the chalkboard and Alec Baldwin's head is a poster that says, ABC Always Be Closing, which is unbelievably stupid. Uh, that it, it, and I don't mean in a bad way. I mean it. It showcases how incredibly insipid these sales operations can become. Uh, that the this high-powered sales guy comes in and offers you literally a retread of a poster that is above the coffee maker. That's I, hilarious. I find that hilarious. And maybe it's because I spent too much time in sales. <laughs> It was really, I, it's touching. It's touchingly uh, 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 horrific, this experience. It really, It. it's really good. It's it really, is. It's really, really good. Did you well, ever, it, were you, did you do sales? Were you ever a sales guy? I never did sales. You never did Cutco? <laughs> nope. Oh man, I did Cutco. I did a lot of multi-level
0: when I was a kid. Ooh. I think the only sales I ever did, if you can count, uh, would be going door to door selling uh, like my newspaper subscriptions. yeah. That's probably as 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 much sales as I ever did.
1: Well, it was probably before the internet, right? You probably made bank. You were a cute little blonde kid, going oh, yeah. door to door.
0: Yes, yeah, so I would bat my cute little eyes.
1: You did. Oh, would but you, you did. like to
0: buy some newspapers for me?
1: I sold I sold magnets and water filters, water filtration systems for like businesses. It was terrible. <laughs> supplements. <laughs> oh, did I ever do supplements?
0: <laughs> yeah. I think yeah. there was a point in college where I actually was looking at doing one of those summer like travel the country and yeah. sell steak knives door to door or whatever. And yep. I never, I never quite <laughs> managed to sign up for that. I think that's probably for the best.
1: Because <laughs> uh, then you would end up as, um, uh, you know, you 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 would probably would have ended up as as the Baldwin character. You would have been a uh, uh, Blake driving the sixty thousand dollar BMW. Yeah, probably. I can see that as you. That would be He, he uh, how'd he do with everybody else? He's only, he comes in here. They, I've heard him referred to as a vocational terrorist, and I love that. I love that <laughs> phrase. Uh, How did he do as an actor with the rest of the cast?
0: Uh, well, this was a, this was a, one of those films where I think Foley smartly said, look, we're doing a mammoth play. We need to do some rehearsals. And he had the the, the cast come in for three weeks to do a full rehearsal of it and really figure out uh, the beats and how they were going to say and the motivations in, in their in their dialogue and really get a sense of everything. And my understanding is Baldwin, you know, he only had this one bit, and, he, and I don't know if he was there for rehearsals or what, but he really didn't have the sense of camaraderie that the rest of the, the cast did because they had been kind of around each other so much. So when he came in, they really resented him. And a lot of that was because, I think, because his character is such a despicable character. But he kind of used that and, and just kind of went with that and took that kind of that resentment that they had and just played with it and really used that to his advantage as he did the scene. And I think it just made for a really strong character. Absolutely.
1: His, you know, his uh, primary interaction is with the, the uh, fantastic Ed Harris as Dave Moss uh, in, in this particular sequence. Ed Harris is, um, well, he's so Ed Harris in this film. Um, he is, uh, he's, he's an interesting character because he's sort of, the game he talks is Ricky Roma's game. He talks as if he is in Roma's uh, league. But if he were really in Roma's league, he would not have even been at that meeting. Because the one guy you know would not have given uh, Blake the time of day is Ricky Roma. And he's the one guy who wasn't there. And so when you see Dave Moss, it is it becomes much easier to see just how, uh, just how sort of hollow his character is as a person. Uh, that he is sitting there and just having to take it. Just gut it. Just gut it out.
0: What I like about seeing Ed Harris in this role is I get so lost sometimes in Ed Harris's characters of him being like this great like Apollo 13 type of character. I really I I really like that Ed Harris. He's so uh he's so strong, he's so um uh, just that that good guy. He's the sort of guy that you really want to root for. And seeing a guy like like Dave Moss when Ed Harris is playing him, that is an Ed Harris that I don't get so much. But I really enjoy that Ed Harris. And and yeah, I think you're right. I mean, I think he he plays that part really well of the guy who wants to play the game. But he really, uh, I mean, you know, he's the guy behind this robbery. I mean, there's something much darker going on with him.
1: He's also the guy who when everything gets super serious he leaves screaming obscenities to everyone else. Yes. You know, that's he's that guy. Uh Alan Arkin uh, Just- uh lovely uh, performance from Mr.
0: <laughs> Arkin. <laughs> (laughs) he's always good and I I, what I love about Ellen Arkin is he does this schlub so well yeah you know I mean he he plays it so well and he's so good at it and it's just I don't know what that says about him but then you know Little Miss Sunshine is totally not the same sort of character and so he does a nice variety and I think that uh, it's really fun seeing him as this frustrated guy who not only does he get screwed over by the company but then Moss also tries to screw him over by saying hey you know what you're guilty now too because <laughs> because if, if i go through with it you're guilty before the fact and it's just it's he is, just he like... just always
1: walks into it like he just walks in i think that is that defines the alan arkin schlub scale like it is he he plays a really wide variety of schlubs uh but it's always on that spectrum the schlub yes. spectrum right the schlubstrom and what
0: And what's great about him here is that he really is the guy who's just gonna push and do everything he can to make it work. He's the last thing we see in the film as he gets on the phone and starts trying to make calls again it's it, you know he is a kind of just a motivating force of pushing and and trying to work his own way through the muck he's not going to go to the lengths of stealing stuff he's just going to push hard and and try to make it and see if he can figure out how to survive on this on this ladder the nice thing that works out for him is in the situation where where there's four of them and only two people are going to be moving forward two of them are now getting fired and arrested so <laughs> By default, he ends up making his way through and getting the set of steak knives.
1: He is, uh, yeah, he's, he's fantastic. What's interesting about him is that he never, he, his character um, is, his character's sort of innate goodness is portrayed in such a way that it never achieves any sort of balance in the office, right? It, everybody, it, nobody else is sort of magnetized by him. Uh, and that's, that ends up being a really sad bit of his character. Like, nobody ever ta- is able to take his energy and feel inspired. Uh and it ends up being just super depressing <laughs> it is yes, Kevin Spacey as the office boss uh is this was this was the first thing I saw Kevin Spacey in was the usual suspects, really, yeah,
0: you saw that before this
1: I did, and so this was a real surprise because first of yeah. all, I was like, that dude can walk, no. <laughs> 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 uh no, this was a real surprise. And and uh, this is so this was the film that I that I saw uh that then I thought, okay, this is he's gonna be a major guy out of all these guys, because I knew all the other guys in this film. I knew all the other guys. Uh but Kevin Spacey um he was the guy I thought I'm 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 gonna need to watch him.
0: I it's it's funny because I for some reason thought you were gonna say the ref. Which happened the year before usual suspects. Oh
1: man, you are so right. <gasps> My memory has just been changed. Thank just you, right man. here on the show. I love the ref.
0: <laughs> yep. yep. What's funny is I is I saw this movie in I mean, like I said, it sometime shortly after it was released. And he was the one guy that I was like, oh, all these great guys. And then there's that one guy yeah. <laughs> who plays the office manager. Who the hell is he? And it's funny because, I mean, he held his own up against all these other uh, all these other people that I recognize. And I'm like, why did they cast that guy? It's interesting that they didn't cast a big name like they cast all the other parts. But after watching this film and seeing his progression of his career, it's very clear. It's very, very clear. Very clear. Yeah, And, and you I...
1: said it because he's a guy who can, even though he is in that position, he's the office manager because of some family connection, because of something. He doesn't really know what he's doing, but he puts on these fantastic airs. Kevin Spacey is playing that role because he's the guy who can hold his own against Al Pacino, who can stand there and take it and look like he's meant to take it.
0: Absolutely, absolutely. And, I mean, he had been working in the business since the mid-'80s um, in, in bit parts and stuff like um, Heartburn and Working Girl and See No Evil, Hear No Evil and Dad. I mean, he had been out there doing stuff. and uh, But this, as I'm kind of going through his credits— um,
1: Not memorable.
0: Yeah, nothing that was huge— Uh, I mean, he had a a character arc in Wise Guy, the TV series from the late 80s, but I don't know if that's something that's really going to. I have zero memory of that. Yeah, zero memory. Neither do I. It's Glengarry Gary, Glen Ross. This yeah. is the film that, for me, stands out as the point where people start going, "Hey, that guy. Let's get him. He's he's really great in that film. He can hold his own uh, against all these characters. And now, yes, let's cast him as you know this this, uh, this wicked senator. You know, I mean, he's he's a guy that people um, want to cast because he's a brilliant actor. Yeah. And uh, yeah, he, he certainly uh, did a great job here. Have
1: you seen his his acting school? Man, I, I've seen a fortune to advertise that on Facebook.
0: Oh, I know. I see the ads on Facebook all the time, but yeah. I've not actually seen any of them.
1: Me neither. But I just see his face. I'm like, oh God, it's Kevin Spacey's acting school again. <laughs> <laughs> uh, we got a couple of other little uh, bit uh, play, uh, parts. Uh, Bruce Altman is uh, Larry Spanel. Uh He plays opposite, uh, obviously Shelley in the sales call, and uh, Jude Chichalela. Ch-
0: Jude C. <laughs> Jude C.
1: is the detective. And he's, he, you know, for me, he is always the chief of staff from 24, uh, which
0: is a big favorite. Don't forget Lori Tan Chin, the Coach Check Girl. The Coat Check Girl. She was also in What About Bob and Ransom and Living in Oblivion. <laughs> <laughs> nice. That's
1: from right. from Coat Check Girl to Ransom.
0: She was in Chloe and Theo earlier this year, or in two thousand fifteen. I missed that. And she's in Orange is in the New is the New Black. I still she's, haven't.
1: I haven't seen a single episode of it.
0: I've seen a couple. She's Chang, in Orange is the New Black. Hmm. Don't know anything about 17 it. seventeen episodes. There you go. Uh, okay, so James Foley. James Foley. What do you yes. think? You know. If there are any problems I have with this film, it's it's some of the direction. I think he actually does a really good job with, with putting this together for the most part. I think that the parts that feel sloppy to me come in the direction and come in his ability to, to frame a scene with a lot of characters without um, without getting too confusing. There are times where he crosses the line... As two characters are talking to one another. And it it confuses the space a little bit. And even though all of these characters are in this room. And there are some wide shots where I get a good sense of where people are and stuff. The way that he cuts some of the scenes together. I start getting really confused as to where everybody is. And it's a minor, minor quibble. But it is something that I do notice when I'm watching the film. And it's, it's you know. I I think he does a great job with the actors. I think he does a good job. Although we talked about the 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 way that he and the production designer and the and the DP kind of came with the color scheme and everything. I I enjoy all of that. But there are elements of the actual direction and and just kind of structuring the scenes that I think that um he could have been stronger with.
1: Yeah, I I don't I don't have those problems. Uh I I feel like this film if if any stands out to me as just sort of an iconically uh confidently and, and strongly directed small set film. And and I like it. I don't have a problem really with the structure of the film. I, I have a problem with the um you know with other stuff that he's done and it just sort of hurts my feelings that I find this film so good and some of the other ones not. <laughs> uh, and, and, you know, you know what I mean. That's really that the girl? problem that I have. Uh, e- e- fear, um, uh, confidence. I was super disappointed. I really wanted that. I love Con uh, Con movies, and yeah. confidence I found was really, um, really weak. And maybe it's just I've I've grown tired of Ed Burns, and I I don't know. I, I I'm a Rachel Wise. I mean, come on, like it's hard to lose with her in my book. But I I just found that movie really frustrating, and so. You know, overall, I think uh, I, I think that's where uh, my challenge comes. Although I now that I know that he's directed, you know, twelve episodes of House of Cards, uh, I feel like I need to go back and check out some of those episodes because none of them stand out as particularly frustrating to me in the same way that some of his other films are. Uh, and so I'm, I'm, you know, interested in in checking out some of the more. Re- I haven't watched any of the recent, uh, the most recent se- uh, seasons, so. Um. Anyway, so I I don't share your frustration with some of the structural stuff, uh, and I really think this highlights his his strength in putting together a film with with a, a lot of incredibly dominant personalities and dominant characters, uh, alpha characters on screen at once, and making them play uh, in a way that that makes sense. It makes narrative sense. It makes uh, emotional sense. So that's why. Yeah
0: I'm at. i i uh, it it did make me curious as I. Rewatched this film this time. And I looked at his kind of filmography. Uh, I mean, he hadn't done a lot of big stuff before this. At Close Range was probably the biggest. Um, who's That Girl? I guess you could say it was kind of big, at least at the time, despite the fact that I, I don't think it did that well at the box office. Could be wrong there. But I mean, this is his, what? His fifth film that he had done. And not a lot of stuff. And uh, I, I just had questions as I was watching it this time. How much say did he have going in to any particular changes that he wanted to make with Mamet, or was it really kind of um, what Mamet would experience in the world of of uh, theater, where the playwright is king and everybody kind of bows to the playwright, whether it's the director or, or whomever? And you know, I was kind of wondering if if Foley kind of had that sort of um, uh, type of experience working with Mamet, where. Again, Mammoth was king here. Even though it was a film, Foley was not the man who really was behind anything. It was Mammoth. and mm-hmm. and I just have that sense, especially looking at his filmography, if that really was the case here.
1: Yeah, that's an, that's an interesting point. I, you know, and another one I, that I I bring up when you talk about, um, you know, films with strong, uh, writing forces behind them. You know, I I you can't go too far without bringing out the chamber. Uh, another of his uh based on the book by John Grisham and the novel or on the s- screenplay by William Goldman um uh, oh yeah you know strong writing force in um uh, in Hollywood uh and my memory of the chamber is that it was fair to middling. yes um so i i don't know that that helps his case for this film or not but um you know maybe it's just this was a film that really struck me well because of the mamet <laughs> connection i don't know
0: well- Well, I mean, looking at at Foley's career, I I feel like it's fair to say that Mamet is the reason that this film does so well. I mean, you know, Foley's film career, Reckless, At Close Range, Who's That Girl, After Dark, My Sweet, Glengarry Glen Ross, Two Bits, The Chamber, Fear, The Corrupter, Confidence, Perfect Stranger. Which of those films still gets talked about? Um, If any, it's probably Glengarry Glen Glen Ross, yes.
1: Easily. Oh, and, and interesting that he is on to direct both the new Fifty Shades of Grey movies, um, you know, the, the second and third in the series. Uh, and interesting only insofar as it's uh, as those are, um, I'm sure, going to be box office successes. Uh, you think so? Well, I mean, don't are you being sarcastic?
0: I just don't know. I don't know what to expect from those movies. I mean, the first
1: one was, right? I mean, that was kind of a big deal. It wasn't, I didn't see it. I heard it wasn't good.
0: No, uh, yeah, I didn't think it was good, and I don't know how it did at the box. Well, I'm office. checking.
1: I'm checking, Andy, because I feel like I should know this. Uh, Fifty Shades of Gray. This is real time follow up. 166, like uh, 166 million opening weekend, 85
0: out of a budget of 40.
1: So it was a successful film. Yeah. All right.
0: There you go. Take that, Andy. Successful enough to have two sequels. 51 and 52 Shades yeah. of Grey.
1: There you go. 50 Shades of Freed. I think isn't that one the one? That's the <laughs> last. It's it's 50 Shades Darker and 50 Shades of Freed. Something like that. It's ridiculous. Hmm. Why, why would you do that to a perfectly good title? Yeah, 50 Shades Freed and 50 Shades Darker, but in opposite order. 2017, 2018. Weird. That's it. We got to move on. Uh, we've already talked a little bit about uh, production, design, and art direction. Jane Muskie and uh, William Barclay, respective. Uh, I uh, I loved the little set. I mean, it felt like the very worst of the sales offices that I've experienced.
0: Yeah, it was That's nice. I, 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 I did like how it had kind of a little phone room in the back. The bathrooms right next to it. I mean, I, I, I liked kind of the way that it was laid out. I thought that was pretty nice.
1: All right. Your favorite, uh, another uh, composer in the
0: Jays. He's one of my 10 J's, James Newton Howard. What'd you think? It's very jazzy. I mean, it's it's interesting. Uh, it's not like a favorite of mine. I used to have the soundtrack, actually. Um, but I, I I like the jazziness of it. It's just not one that uh, that stands out, I guess. But the jazziness does fit with the world and with Mammoth, kind of just the whole Mammoth speak, I think. So it does have... Something about the music fit nicely within this. Yeah,
1: it's a throwback, I think, to the just um, sort of you know, practically noir, right? It's got that really that sort of vibe to it. That it's a it's a little bit fusion, uh, I think, for me a, a little bit fusion, but um, but I really like it. I mean, I I really think it, like you said, it really fits.
0: Yeah, and uh, you know, Al Jarreau's song "Blue Skies." Uh, I mean, it's not his song, but the song "Blue Skies" that Al Jarreau performs at the end. I think also works nicely with mm-hmm. the story and the fact that Blue Skies comes up right after this uh, debacle of, you know, catching the guy who broke into the, or the guys who broke into the office and everything. I, I think that there's something really nice about that. Plus just the the version that Giroux sings, I think is really, uh, there's something, there's almost a nice intensity that he brings to it that I like quite a bit.
1: Absolutely. Uh, how did this uh, this one get made? Did you look into that at all?
0: Yeah, this one, you know, it's funny. When the play came out, of all people, Irvin Kershner, i.e. Empire Strikes Back,
1: yeah.
0: um, he actually uh, really enjoyed the, the play and wanted to make it. He wanted to direct the movie version of this. He talked to producer uh, Jerry uh, Tarkovsky, who hooked up with B-movie producer Stanley Zupnik. Those guys uh, got involved... They uh they talked to Mamet. Mamet wanted five hundred thousand dollars to uh, for the rights uh, of the play, and then another five hundred thousand dollars to be the uh, the screenwriting screenplay adaptation, and so a cool million for Mamet. So these guys raised the money. Um, and then they they came up with the rest of the money to get this film made. They couldn't get—no studio was interested. They had to go through cable and video companies. There was a German TV station involved, an Australian movie theater chain, some banks, and then finally New Line Cinema. Over the span of four years, they kind of uh, pulled all this money together to make this little movie. It's only $12.5 million, not a huge budget. Um, initially, Pat Pacino wanted to be uh, involved. He was, I think, at the time in American Buffalo— another Mamet play, and so he couldn't be in uh, one of the different iterations of the, the plays of this. Uh, but he really wanted to be in the film, and so he signed on. Jack Lemon signed on, and then Irvin Kirshner dropped out because other things going on in his life. And then Pacino dropped out because of things going on in his life. Alec Baldwin had also been signed on, and then he dropped out because of contract negotiations. And then somehow through all of this, it finally ended up in James Foley's lap. And he said, "Yeah, I'd be interested in this." And he he and Pacino had been talking about doing some jobs together. Somehow he's like uh, was talking to Pacino about it, and Pacino was like, "Yeah, oh, I was going to be in that." And so they got back. He got Pacino back in the movie, and Lemon was still involved. And so, and then through that, these guys they were able to get the rest of these people and. A lot of people wanted to be involved. I mean, it's it's a it definitely is an actor showcase. De Niro, uh, Bruce Willis, Richard Gere, Joe Mantegna, who, like I said, um, was in the uh, the the Chicago and Broadway iterations of the stage play. They all wanted to be involved, and um and you know I I think that the right people came together to make this thing. There were problems with these two producers, Takovsky and uh, Zupnik. They got into a big fight, I guess, midway through, and uh, about you know money and rights and credits and all this, and they sued each other, and I, I don't know how it resulted. Um, I guess it's just good to know that the movie did find a way to uh, theaters after all of that because that's the sort of thing that sometimes can kill a project and can keep it from ever getting released.
1: I, I got to go back to Jerry Takovsky. Uh-huh. Did you look at what else he's produced? I didn't. Eight eight films. He's produced eight films. Uh, Where's Papa? George Segal and Ruth Gordon. Oh. Uh, he produced Born to Win. Again, George Segal and uh, uh, Robert De Niro. Uh, Paternity.
0: Oh, yeah. Burt Reynolds,
1: Beverly D'Angelo. Uh, Fear City. Strippers in Manhattan are being stalked and murdered by a psycho. It was okay to put that in a in a thing. That was Tom Berenger and Billy Dee Williams. That's right. Wow. And then this is Get Ready. I almost want to do this one last because I'm so excited about it. Joseph Rubin, director. David Lawry and, uh, well, pretty much David Lawry. Dreamscape, 1984. Dennis Quaid, Max von Sydow, Christopher Plummer.
0: There's a guilty pleasure.
1: Tell me you love that film. Tell me you love that film.
0: I love that film. At least, Close. at least I love my memories of that film.
1: Just let me just <laughs> let me just say it. Enter a world where anything can happen. Close your eyes and let the nightmares begin. <laughs> that was it, right? With the snakehead monster. Yeah, the oh, snakehead guy. Oh yeah, he's behind that, Andy. <laughs> Oh man that uh, was not, so good. And not
0: much else that was. There good. is
1: yeah it's absolutely true. Yeah. Eddie Albert.
0: Oh and my he, god he George Went. Uh,
1: George Went was in that movie.
0: He did that he produced that with Zupnik. They yeah. produced that together. That's right. Fear City Dreamscape Dreamscape Wildfire and this.
1: Yeah. Wildfire. Woof. Linda Fiorentino. Uh and this one is really I think this is the one he's going to hang his hat on. So that's all I, it's just one. I think that's fair to say all right all right enough enough about that uh do we do we have anything else? Or are we ready to talk about numbers yeah, let's talk numbers let's talk about numbers Andy, how did it do?
0: well, like I said, it cost twelve point five million to make, which in today's dollars is about twenty and three quarters uh, so you know it's I think most of that went to actor salaries and to rain right
1: <laughs> <laughs> that seems bananas to me, but I also read that that the single biggest uh, the single biggest line item on the film was the the massive rain for the first fifty minutes of produced film. Uh, that is a, a ton of rain, and it turns out that was. Does that
0: seem crazy to you as a producer? Like, Not, am I nuts? I mean, when you take actor salaries out, then okay. I I don't think it's nuts because I mean, you don't pay those actors.
1: guys even even back then. You don't pay those guys as much as you pay for the rain. I mean, no, you, you pay. Not. You don't pay as much for the
0: rain as you pay for those guys. No, right. <laughs> All right. The uh, but you know, unfortunately, this film just, I it did not find an audience. It, it only made ten point seven million, which is about uh, seventeen point eight million um, in today's dollars. So this film actually was a box office loser, despite the fact that it has kind of found an audience. And I think that people now kind of click with it. I mean, critics loved it. I think people really get a sense as to what's going on here. And I, I think that people do enjoy this film, even though at the time it ended up losing about uh, about thirty thousand adjusted dollars per finished minute. It's right there with the thing in La Femme Nikita on our on our uh, uh, list of films losing t- in the box office. Wow!
1: <laughs> All right. Well, so. that gives us a good start. Yes. I say we rank it. Let's do it. Head over to FlickChart, everybody. It's our very favorite site for uh, matching movies. Uh, and we're gonna, you're going to set up an account over there. It's what you should do. And you should do a search for Glengarry Glen Ross. And then you're going to be asked to rank it against uh, probably 10 or so of your other favorite movies. And there'll probably be movies like ranking Glengarry Glen Ross against, I don't know, I'm going to say Star Wars The Force Awakens. And you're going to have to decide which is a better movie. I dare you. I triple dog dare you to make that pick. Andy, where do we start?
0: You are mean. (laughs) Well, we're not starting there. We're starting with Glengarry Glen Ross versus The Bad Seed.
1: Glengarry Glen Ross, please.
0: Totally Glengarry Glen Ross. We didn't even talk about the title. (laughs) It's such a weird title. It's a
1: weird title. I don't like talking about it. (laughs) It makes me me uncomfortable.
0: (laughs) Glengarry Glen Ross or Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind?
1: I'm gonna go Glengarry on this one, and I know you're gonna go Eternal.
0: I I'm really torn on this one, but I am gonna go Eternal Sunshine.
1: How much are you
0: gonna go? <sighs> I'm going there. Here we go. All right. One one, two, two three. three scissors. Rock. Oh, really? You know, <laughs> you're making me feel guilty. I am still going with Internals. I'm sorry. I was going to switch because I care about you, but not that much. You know Great. why? Because I am a closer, Pete. <laughs> I am a closer. Have you made your decision for Christ? Glenn Gary, Glenn Ross or The Killing, a little Stanley Kubrick action. I'm going to go Glenn Gary even though I love The Killing. Um I do feel that some of the uh I think it's probably the voiceover might feel a little uh dated for me I'm with you Glengarry Glen Ross in the Glen Ross Highlands, or being there oh. mm
1: Glengarry Glen Ross
0: or for being there really you should
1: uh. you should know i well, I don't really care if you know this uh it, the global flick chart ranking of Glengarry Glen Ross is two hundred seventy nine It's in a good position. This film.
0: People like this film. I am one of them. They do. But it's being there, Pete. I'm going to go Glengarry, though. I am going to go Glengarry. Glengarry or 12 Monkeys. 12 Monkeys for me.
1: Yeah, 12 Monkeys.
0: (laughs) Glengarry shows you Uh, Glengarry, Glenn Ross. (laughs) Glengarry, Glenn Glenn Ross, or Forrest Gump. I'm Forrest Gump. Suck it, (laughs) Glengarry. Wow, Glengarry. Or the man in the white suit, Pete? Oh.
1: I do adore the man in the white suit. I know you do. On principle, I have
0: to choose it. All right, I'm Glenn Gary.
1: Okay, you can have it.
0: My (laughs) conscience is clean. (laughs) I knew you were going to use me. (laughs) I feel dirty. I feel like... My white suit has been soiled. <laughs> Glengarry Gary, Glen Ross are the big Lebowski.
1: Please don't soil your suit. <laughs> I'm definitely Glengarry Gary, Glen Ross over Lebowski. I'm
0: definitely Lebowski.
1: Oh no! Please, ready? Yes. One, two, three. Paper. One, two, two, three. three, paper. Paper. One,
0: uh, two, two, three, three scissors. Paper. Oh. Skunked me on that. That
1: one. is as it should
0: be. <laughs> but it's Lebowski. All right. Well, sixty-six. All, All right. right. Number sixty-six, sandwiched right between Forrest Gump and The Big Lebowski. That's a lot of it. names. We've got Gump, Gary, and Lebowski.
1: <laughs> Gary Glenn and Ross. <laughs> <laughs> I uh, no, I'm a I'm a big fan of that number. That feels really good.
0: Yeah 66. And, uh, I I think that's uh I mean it is a really a really stellar film and I think that mammoth really shines through this is the film that exemplifies mammoth as writer and i'm really glad that it was included in this uh this series this year
1: i am too it is it is a textbook good screenplay and uh um, i think it is it's great to look at for me it's even more fun to think about uh when you think about the art of adaptation and and an artist adapting his own work i think it's just terrific so i too am glad that we added it to the series
0: this year how does this do for star rating for you over on letterboxd you know some of the directing stuff dropped a little bit i'm torn between four and four and a half but i think i'm at four and a half
1: i'm gonna give you four and a half
0: all right four and a half it is i feel very good about that
1: me too and
0: now all that nonsense out of the way where do we go from here's another big week we are finishing out our series, and, you know, it's, it always saddens me when we're finishing a series, but I'm really curious to go back and revisit this one. This is Lee Tamahori's 1997 film, The Edge.
1: Now, my memory of this isn't all that great. I think we've I, talked about this, and I, I I, was on the record of saying I didn't like it, but I am also on the record of saying I may not remember it that well.
0: This was uh, something that I saw in the theaters a couple times. I was working at the as a projectionist at the time, and... And I think it was very easy to kind of just watch things. I remember watching this and really enjoying it at the time. I think there was something really interesting about Anthony Hopkins in the film. I love Alec Baldwin in it. It's not a perfect film, but I loved kind of that the nature elements of it. And I, uh, you know, I, I think there's uh, a lot going for it. Um, the fact that I believe the title had been called the Bookworm before it became. Um, uh, the edge. I, I I think that says a lot about it. So I'm I, I don't think I've seen it probably since it was in theaters. So mm. I'm I'm pretty curious to go back and revisit this one, see how it holds up now.
1: And we have another short coming up this week. Uh, uh, this is another one of our favorites. It's part of our little mini series uh, around the folks behind our very favorite movie sites, and uh, you know you don't have to go very far to. To find our love for FlickChart. And so we've got Nathan Chase and Jeremy Thompson. They're going to join us for a conversation uh, about what uh, what has gone into making FlickChart and what's what's coming in uh, the next
0: big iteration of FlickChart. We're very excited about that conversation. Can't wait. And with that, uh, I'm going to go ahead and uh, go to bed. Will you go to bed? Go to bed. Will you go to bed?
1: I got a one-star uh, <laughs> from Disappointed on. Uh, it's a recent one. Uh, it's titled, uh, Time, You Will Never Get Back. Only give one because I can't give zero. Maybe it just wasn't my cup of tea, but due to the constant use of foul language, trust me, I'm not a prude, and a few curse words don't scare slash bother me, but this was constant and unnecessary. And poor plotline... I don't even, didn't even finish the movie, just couldn't take it anymore. I uh well obviously I disagree, and I don't think there was enough foul language. I like, think there were certain passages that really I could have brought it home with a few more. <laughs>
0: I like that Disappointed actually goes so far as to say, maybe it wasn't his cup of tea. (laughs) I mean, I think it's pretty clear it wasn't. Just own it. If this was a
1: tea, it would have been in a cup I would have passed.
0: (laughs) Well, I have a one-star also by Dr. Venus. Venus, 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 Venus. (laughs) Dr. Venus says, I didn't like it. I had to force myself to watch it. And even with that, I couldn't. (laughs) It felt like a loop of going nowhere. Man, that's almost a haiku. It felt
1: like a loop (laughs) of going nowhere. I need that middle seven. (laughs) I had to force... Well, I could do this all night. Clearly, we disagree with Dr. Venus and disappointed. Sorry they had such trouble with it. But thank you, Amazon.
0: Okay, we're going to play a little game. I'm going to name a series from season five and you try to guess how many movies from it were adaptations. I'm getting better at this.
1: 1939. Gone with the Wind. Wizard of Oz. Goodbye, Mr. Chip. Uh, of the to the Baskervilles.
0: Nice. Meryl
1: Streep. Kramer versus Kramer. Zoe's uh, Choice. Uh, French <laughs> Lieutenant's Women. Nice. How about Naughty Children? Uh, uh, the Bad Seed. Uh, Village of the Damned. The Innocents. Nice. Your favorite, David Mamet.
0: Clint Eric Ross. Oh, I figured you'd nail that one. We've covered lots of great movies that started as books. Books like Metropolis, Manhunt. Ministry of Fear, The Great Escape. So many great movies from so many great sources, and they're all on Audible.
1: Producing this podcast is a lot of fun, but takes a lot of time. We've dropped the dynamically inserted ads because they're so annoying and have no connection to our content.
0: Plus, they just jam those things in wherever they see fit. We listened to you when you said you didn't like them, so now we're directly appealing to you, our dear listener. Please consider an Audible subscription to help support The Next Reel and our family of podcasts.
1: I have been using Audible along with my family for decades now. I love it, and I have read hundreds of books through it.